This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. In this episode, sounds and words that you've recorded and sent us on patterns. You'll hear from Sarah Baum, Ruth O'Connor, Dermot Hester, Elaine Howley, Kimberly Reyes, Kian Roach and Siobhan Mannion. But first, Julian Goff is a writer and he's sectioned off an area of his sitting room to create a booth. Hi, Julian. Hi, Solana. <clears throat> he's talking to writer Solana Joy. They're married. <laughs> All of the scenarios of me sitting on, on your desk, this is, this is definitely the least uh, erotic. <clears throat> I got a second. How are we doing here? Looks like it's recording. Okay. <laughs> There's Eva. Oh boy. Yep. I can go settle her on her platform thing and come back. Hang on one second. Otherwise, this is going to be like. <laughs> Julian is trying to make a podcast, but every time they start to record, they're interrupted. And this pattern continues and causes frustration and cursing. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Hi, Solana. So, what the fuck are we doing? Oh, bloody hell, it's Aoife again. This happens every time. Oh, Every time I close that door, she's outside. No. Come here. There you go. Okay. There you go. Just fear of missing out. So. <laughs> Hi, Julian. Hi, Solana. Hi, Eva. Okay. Eva's got a bowl full of cat food, so that should hold her for. She is a cat. Five minutes. She is a cat, yes. That would have been a bit alarming if we hadn't explained. Yeah, the child isn't eating cat food. The cat is eating cat food. <clears throat> so, uh, where do we begin? Okay, cat eating, do... child's asleep. Your last book, yeah. Four Grown-Ups, yeah. was called Connect. Yeah. And that's because there's all these themes of connection and people connecting and the... Yeah. And, you know... All these ideas connecting and uh, the whole universe Layers connecting. Layers of reality yeah. connecting. And, yeah, yeah. and I'd say similar to that. <laughs> How much food was that? She's back with three I'm just going to go put her in the other room. It's okay. Hang on. The nice thing about working from home is that you, you can outfit your one meter by two meter closet exactly the way you want it. And you've got no commute and you can make your own delicious coffee the way you like it. And but the downside is that there's usually either a child or a cat trying to open the door. All right. So that actually was a beautiful illustration of point thinking uh, for how everything is integrated. Uh, We've got like you know people talk about you know work life balance, but you know we actually both work from home with a cat and a child, and all of a sudden. A huge swath of the globe is finding themselves trying to reckon with our a similar situation that to what we are in every That's day. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because oh, I think he's woken up. Oh, our 
spoiler time. Spoiler time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, Arlo. <laughs> I think you've done a poop. Hello, baby. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> you look swell. You look yeah. good. You look rested. You smell. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I think. Could be. Could be. Well done. He's eating it now. <laughs> you have a point. We might just leave Julian and Solana to answer their son Arlo's call of nature. Sarah Bam sees more elegant patterns in nature, and for the past couple of years, she's been watching birds come and go from Cape Clear Island. These birds have blown off course to the island, their migrant patterns redrawn. Greater white-fronted goose, Greenland white-fronted goose, greylag goose, Brent goose. I wanted to make some kind of an artistic gesture in tribute to all the lost and accidental birds. Common eider, surf scoter, velvet scoter. I settled on cross-stitch, perhaps the least pretentious and least ambitious of all needlework. And so, for over a year now, I've been stitching bird samplers. Samplers are provisional things. They're thoughts as opposed to proclamations. Practice runs as opposed to finished pieces. Each sampler is a small rectangle of Ada cloth. Ada is a slightly stiff, mesh-like fabric produced especially for cross-stitch. I cut them to size according to my folder of cardboard templates. The size of each template pertains to the weight of each bird. My smallest represent the warblers. My largest represent the geese. The first line of stitches is the top of the bird's head and the last is the tip of its tail. Each stitch is a slight straight mark, the plainest, starkest kind of glyph. I think of each one, as I work, as the representation of a flap. But in this sense, it's a paltry tribute. The warblers are each 40 stitches across and 25 rows down, so 1,000 stitches in all, which is practically nothing in comparison to the true number of flaps a songbird would have to make to complete even the shortest journey of migration. Red-necked grebe, Eurasian honey buzzard, black kite, red kite, white-tailed eagle. My threads are pure cotton, and I have a countless array of colours, though I rarely ever get to apply the brightest shades. I try to get the plumage as accurate as possible. I begin by looking up multiple pictures online, but there is sometimes a, a worrying discrepancy between photographs. Selecting my colours, row by row, in order to capture all sides of the bird at once, I tend to pretend that its body is spinning. There's been quite a bit of yellow and some nice greens, some rusty reds, but it's the blacks, whites, greys and browns that I always run out of first. It's been a year now. Almost every evening I've put in an hour and a half of stitching at least. The silver patina has worn off my two most used needles to expose a black core 
and on the outer side of my right index finger the skin has toughened into a callus. I keep them all in my little junk room of art, the vagrant birds of Cape Clear. They are piled up in plastic folders, waiting to be trimmed, to be ironed. Each sampler is an abstract portrait, and if it wasn't for a species label on the reverse side, no reasonable human being could ever guess what they are supposed to be or supposed to mean. It will only be when they all come together that I hope they will finally make sense, that they will add up into something epic, an esoteric map of my own journey or an impossible flock. Lesser yellow leg. Wilson's phalarope. Rednecked phalarope. Ross's gull. Ringbilled gull. Yellow-legged gull. Roseate tern. Yellow-billed cuckoo. Eurasian Scots owl. Sarah Bam's essay was recorded and mixed by Regan Hutchins. Patterns intrigue us. Daily news of transmission, how viruses spread, markets change, weather, new lines of grass created by walkers in your local areas, traffic. Ruth O'Connor is a fashion and design journalist. She's witnessed the community spirit among creatives in Ireland in response to COVID-19. From creating patterns and sewing masks and scrubs to raising money. As helplessness gripped many in the early days of lockdown, a quiet army of creatives, designers, craftspeople and costume makers began to consider what they could do, how they could use their talent and experience in the fight against an enemy with a destructive pattern of its own. They used their daily essential exercise allowance to get the things they'd made to the people who needed them, home helps and community nurses, staff in nursing homes and youth mental health services, hospital staff and GPs in communities across the country, north and south. And just as various pattern pieces come together to make up an entire garment, these various people working in houses and apartments and cottages, many of them cocooning, came together to become something greater than the sum of their parts. The pattern drafters and fabric cutters, the sewers and pressers and packers and posters and carefully sanitised hand deliverers created something beyond the garments they made. They balanced the books and paid the factories. They repaid old favours and paid others forward. They created new bonds, communities and friendships. People of all ages and backgrounds woven together like warp and weft. People connected by a running stitch of compassion. People looking through the eye of a needle and seeing all things possible. Here's writer Siobhan Mannion with a piece about a lifetime of shared gifts. All your gifts were things to make, for us to build or sew or paint, measuring string, cutting out shapes, following a plan, a template. Your housewarming gift from aunt to niece, an enormous guide to gardening. I look through it and study the pictures, hoping to grow bright flowers in my small patch of earth.
Colour was important in your life. It was there in the clothes you chose, vivid hand-knitted wools and your vast array of patterned scarves, in the quilts you assembled from assorted squares of cloth, and all the beautiful cards you sent, picked up in art galleries. You loved colour, and cats, tea and chat, the radio, your garden, all gardens, and people, with your warm, easy laughter and the way that you listened, what you noticed, what you asked, and how you missed her too, our mother, your sister, these twenty-seven years. Once, parked facing the Atlantic near the remote hill of your childhood, I spoke to you for a long time on the phone, watching the dance and strike of sunshine, the unpredictable squalls. I asked you about your lives before, before both of you left school at fourteen and took the boat to England, became nurses, married, and each had four children. About your mother and how she had survived as a widow raising six. You told me about the animals, about the seaweeds harvested on the nearby shore, spread over carrots and potatoes planted in a hollow near the house. You recalled the wild honeysuckle and fuchsia, the ivy at Christmas, the strawberries and blackberries eaten straight from the bush. You, a conduit for the stories, handing them down our diagonal line. You were buried on the rarest of all dates, the last day of the second month in a leap year, the ceremony almost derailed by a storm, a forecast of actual meteorological danger, reordering the shape of the day. And we did not know, as we huddled graveside, battered by the gale tearing across the rise, that had it been a few days later, and you had made it to eighty years, we would be standing far apart, most of us not present at all, and we could not have gathered in two countries, in the Connemara of your youth and the Glasgow you made a home. The last time I flew to visit you, when illness had disrupted the working channels of your mind, we held our breath in the moments when a memory seemed about to surface, when we could see you had us all stored there, inside. We played music in your daughter's house, two of your grandchildren and one of your grandnieces, the one who shares your name, with us in the room. Songs that you had listened to by oil lamp, on a wind-up gramophone, the sounds made by a needle tracing over grooves. Now, nearing the end of your life, you listened on a mobile phone to the voices brought to us by an unfathomable sequence of design. The music mapping out a faraway place, a long ago time, while you were still here with us, and then was now. That was Siobhan Mannion with music by Kian Roach, who produces work under the name Subject is Five.
this part of the practice we place the count just before the in-breath. So we're anticipating what's about to happen rather than marking what's just happened. These are recordings by Regan Hutchins of meditation practitioner so Nana Dara. One, breathe in and out. Two, in and out in our natural rhythm. Soothing, isn't it? And so on. I breathe in and out. I can't help now, it. Neither can you. It's breath. a reflex. There's nothing more to it. Nothing less either. But breath is powerful. You're just simply aware of your breathing. Even the Earth's first oxygen was so powerful it tipped the world off balance. Released, the oxygen corroded the seams of iron and rusted them, like old ball bearings that roll off wheels, staining the mud, Bringing bleeding back into the, the ground. Sensations that you feel All because of air. Where the breath first enters your body. This week across the USA and around the world in support, protesters are drawing attention to repeated patterns of discrimination, privilege and abuses against black people, against the killing of George Floyd and how we, I, often take our very breath for granted. From the day a baby flounders out of their mother, they demand air, inhale, exhale, unassuming patterns, the very least you could expect. In it goes and out it goes, in it goes and out it goes your breath. If you're lucky, there's gasps of surprise, grunts on the in and out, great gulps when excited, jagged when crying. Deep breaths, heaves and sighs. All being equal, you can keep the pattern the rhythm rising and falling. The repeated chants of Black Lives Matter supporters. They know that breath is essential and political. When something or someone tipping the balance without warning takes your breath away. Elaine Helley is a sound artist. In her composition, thoughts of a person come in waves.
into a thought about you fully into a thought about you fully stuck in a rut, whether it's our daily routine or our relationships. In On Touch, Kimberly Reyes finds a way to disrupt her pattern of destructive dating. In the spring of 2018, I was ghosted by a guy two weeks before my birthday, which he was in charge of planning. The real kicker was I'd spent the previous two months convincing myself I was attracted to him just to have what appeared to be a reliable partner. This historic dating low was the culmination of a thousand lifelong wrong turns for the sake of an ephemeral, intoxicating touch. I didn't grow up in a house where the sanctity and power of affection were understood, and my black femaleness and mostly white surroundings meant that I was romantically under-socialized and just plain dumb in dating, always searching for a hit of the touch drug. I'd entered the dating ring knowing what I wanted and what I was waiting for, but in this tindered day and age, that means mostly waiting. Then the dearth and hunger set in, and I'm making horrific, half-sighted choices and taking dangerous chances to appease my addiction. Recently commencing a memoir of essays, my unhealthy patterns became painfully clear to me, and I decided to put the brakes on dating altogether. I'd had my fill of desperation and wanting what I couldn't control. I know my heart will heal, but my body will ache until the next hit. I fear the loss of a lover's touch more than any broken promise. For better or worse, I've substituted sex for the sensation of smooth gin down the back of my throat, the acidity of a chilled Chardonnay, and the tryptophan unlocked in a block of brie. Gluttony seems a safer gamble than strangers and STDs, and, as a Taurus, I've always defined loneliness by lack of physical pleasure more than the absence of company. And I'm now a Fulbrighter and poet, being paid to learn and write from a top-floor flat in the middle of gothically beautiful cork. I'm a black girl from Queens, New York, thriving and holding a middle finger up to COVID-19 because I left what wasn't serving me just in time to survive. Space and silence are my new tenderness, and I've never been more productive work-wise. For me, the main benefits of affection and sex are relief, protection, and distraction from the world's toxicity, and now I'm at least two socially distanced meters away from any potential drama and its distracting energy. I broke free from my destructive patterns just in time to give myself a chance to touch and truly be touched. When I do see new people, it's usually my friends doting partners in the background of our Zoom meetings, making tea with cats purring on laps. I sometimes feel envy, as I'd still like that kind of in-house touch someday. But for now, the stillness is safe and sensual enough. A lack of touch is something many of us are missing at the moment. 
We forget how often we come into contact with others at the barbers, church, playing sports or in nightclubs, or in a tattoo parlour. Academic and writer Dermot Hester formed a friendship over the years with his tattooist Jim as he traced the patterns on his skin. People often ask me about my tattoos. Running up and down my arms, across my chest and down my back in tightly knit geometric forms. Squares and cubes. A star tetrahedron on my breastbone. Black lines settling into a dark blue with time. Rolling up my sleeve to show them the fine webbing that wraps round my shoulder, I tell them it started with a mandala and spread out from there. Like many people, I'd thought about getting a tattoo for a long time, but never went through with it till I was in my mid-twenties. I was drawn to blocky, geometric images. Something about the tension between straight lines and the smooth curves of the body spoke to me. It seemed to express the feelings I had about the world as a bisexual man. How humans create abstract structures of morality or governance that organic life then has to submit to. Skin as a contested zone between you and the world. When I walked into the tattoo shop in Brighton, Jim seemed a little bit standoffish. He was heading into his 60th year, bald and wrinkled. Tattoos in Tibetan script snaked out from under the collar of his T-shirt. But whatever his demeanour, his eyes were warm and welcoming. They brightened when he heard my idea. He said, Do you know what a mandala is? Used by spiritual traditions across the world, mandalas are geometric patterns that act as guides for focus and meditation. The way they work is, the more you look at them, the more the universe makes sense or takes on a certain order. Buddhist mandalas, for instance, use squares and circles one inside the other, the Buddha often at the heart of it. Jim and I made our own secular mandala. He printed it onto transfer paper and pasted it onto my shoulder. Looking at it in the mirror, I decided it looked like an aerial photograph of an Aztec temple. He started up the tattoo gun, buzzing like a big angry hornet, and in the black lines went, long like needle-thin stitches. Small facts about our lives surfaced over the noise. His mother was Irish and he loved his Irish roots. I grew up in Kilkenny, lived in France for a bit, ended up here. We talked a lot about hurling. He picked Limerick for the All-Ireland. I mean, how do you tell someone who's drilling a needle into you that he's lost his mind? Anyway, the buzzing stopped abruptly and we were done for the day. Blood and ink wiped away, skin washed down, shoulder wrapped in cling film and I headed home, exhausted. The lines healed slowly and then itched unmercifully before I returned two weeks later for another session, another discussion. Each fortnight the same routine for what must have been many months, the closeness between the two of us building bit by bit as the geometric patterns marched down my arm. His children, his divorce, his mother's death, his Buddhism, my rootlessness, my sincerity, my lacerating nihilism, my drive. It seems to me now that we are plotting the outlines of something, a pattern beneath the pattern, more improvised, but just as permanent. 
Later, even when there was no tattooing to be done, there was still slices of toast and cups of tea taken after the long trek to his house perched on a cliff outside Brighton. And so it's been for almost a decade since. Reticulated rituals of friendship laid down in blood and ink. That's it for Keywords this week. It's a New Normal Culture production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Fund.